I want you to turn with me in God's Word this afternoon to Isaiah 54. We'll be looking at Lord's Day 21 this afternoon, dealing with the doctrine of the church and forgiveness and fellowship. We're going to read from Isaiah 54. And here in Isaiah 54, we have good news in the midst of a difficult prophecy. Hear the word of the Lord. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of a gate, your gates of carbuncles, and all, of, all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not for me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that arises against you in judgment." This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. There ends a reading from Isaiah 54. We turn over also to Matthew 16. For a New Testament scripture reading, Matthew chapter 16, we're going to read just verses 13 through 20. Once again, this is the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do you say that the Son of Man is? 
And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. I thought you know, as well to turn in the back of your book of praise to Lord's Day 21. Your pastor's been working through the Belgian Confession, so he said stay away from that. So Lord's Day 21, just preached this at Rehoboth. So you get this this afternoon. What we'll see is the beauty of the church, the bride of Jesus Christ. Three questions and answers. Question 54. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Christian Church? I believe that the Son of God, out of the whole human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, defends, and preserves for himself, by his spirit and word, in the unity of the true, of, of the true faith, a church chosen to everlasting life. And I believe that I am, and forever shall remain, a living member of it. What do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that believers, all and everyone, as members of Christ, have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. Second, that everyone is duty-bound to use his gifts readily and cheerfully for the benefit and well-being of the other members. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, nor my sinful nature, against which I have to struggle all my life, but will graciously grant me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never come into condemnation. There ends a reading of our catechism. May the Lord bless that to us. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and living in this world, we can see that our God has established different means to bring about different ends. Take humanity. God could have created the world in such a way that he made all people all at the same time. They just come into life at a particular time in history. They live for a hundred years, then they die. But we know that's not how God has ordained things to take place. After all, it is Mother's Day. Our mothers have brought us into this world through a, a process that God himself has ordained. God provided the means to bring out that end. If you want a flower, you have to plant a seed. If you want food, you will have to plant or forage, hunt, or domesticate animals. God establishes these means to bring about a particular goal. But God does the same thing in the life of the believer. If we take a step back this afternoon and just think about the big picture of the entirety of the goal of our existence, if it is to dwell eternally with God in the new heavens and the new earth, how do we go from here 
as sinners before God, those who have rebelled against him to the point where we will forever reign with Jesus Christ. And the means that God has accomplished this in the life of the believer is through the church. When someone trusts in Christ, they are saved. They are saved into a community. This isn't optional. This is the way that God ordained all things. Just as when you believe, you're adopted into a family, but a spiritual family. And in this family, as a living member of this family, God gives to us the tremendous privileges, the blessings of inheritance, adoption as sons and daughters. We are members into this family, into the bride of Jesus Christ, which is the church. And so we see this afternoon is that this work that God does externally, internally, is a hidden work of God's grace to us. But we always see the fruit. So we're shown this afternoon the hidden work of God's grace. First, in the beauty of the church. Second, in the sweet communion of the saints. And then third, in the certain forgiveness of sins. First, first we see this in the beauty of the church. The church is a beautiful gift of the Lord to sinners. We're reflecting this afternoon on the beauty of the bride of Jesus Christ. As we begin, let me ask you how you would describe the beauty of the church. Because in the eyes of the world, it does not always look very prosperous, it doesn't always look very beautiful in the eyes of the flesh, but to God it does. In the perspective of our catechism, of a community chosen for eternal life, is the perspective that God gives to us. This is the bride of Jesus Christ, and she's beautiful. How did your bride look on your wedding day? Well, to you, as the groom, she was the most beautiful. Why? Because she's your bride. She's your bride. We are the bride of Jesus Christ, who has so set his love on us, and the bride of Jesus Christ becomes beautiful or is beautified by Christ himself. We'll see that more in a moment. But the church is great. It is big. It expands the world. I've had the privilege to, to worship and even to lead worship in many different countries. I've been in worship services where I've sat there and didn't understand. It was in a language I hadn't spoken before. I've worshipped in places of great poverty. I've worshipped in places of historical beautiful buildings, in gymnasiums, community halls, in a home, under a roof with a dirt floor. And the thing that all of those places, all of these congregations had in common was the very thing that made each one of them beautiful. They were worshiping the Lord as part of a community chosen for eternal life. United in true faith, looking unto their Lord and Savior. When you experience that, when you reflect on that as part of the church of Jesus Christ, and you recognize God's grace in your own life of what you deserve and what you receive 
It must move your heart to praise God, to worship God. Why me, Lord? Why would you have poured out your grace on me? But for the grace of God, what would you be today? When you reflect on this, it is moving and emotional. This is the bride of Jesus Christ. This congregation, Ancaster Canadian from Church, is beautiful. It's a beautiful part of the bride of Jesus Christ. And not to purposely offend you, but it's not beautiful because of each one of you individually. It's beautiful because your Savior has called you in a community together. You are his bride, and therefore you are beautiful before the Lord God Almighty. If you cannot see the beauty of the church of Jesus Christ and the privilege of being part of the church of Jesus Christ, you're judging beauty by the wrong standard. For it is in the church that the love of God is poured forth. It is in the church that the hidden grace of God is at work. It is in the church that people's lives are changed. It is in the church that the Holy Spirit is working. It is in the church where we stumble and fall into sin. And God picks us up once again. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. It is in the church that lives are transformed. And so let us notice briefly six characteristics of the beauty of the holy Catholic Christian church. And the first thing we see in answer 21 is that this is established by the Son of God. I believe that the Son of God is doing this work. Jesus told Peter and the disciples in Matthew 16 that he would build his church. The Son of God is able to build the church because the Son of God purchased the church. Go all the way back to question answer 21. I belong to Jesus Christ. Body and soul, life and in death. He's purchased me from the tyranny of the devil by his precious blood. He drank the cup of God's wrath, brothers and sisters, so that you might drink the cup of salvation. This is the work of the Son of God. The church is holy because the Son makes her holy. This is received through the forgiveness of sins. We'll see that in a moment in answer 56. But the church is a Christian church because she's been purchased by Christ. Second, the church is gathered through the Spirit and the Word. Any congregation can have any number of different programs to reach out to the lost community around them. You could have, you could have picnics. You could have a vacation Bible school. You could have any number of, of good ministries in the church. But those ministries will not bear the fruit that's desired without the Word and Spirit. No one believes without the Spirit. No one believes without the Word. For faith must have an object, and it's in the very Word that we find Christ. It is the teaching of the Word that we must tell others so that they may believe. From the Word... We need to see that there is a God who has made us and all things. From the Word, 
God provides the solution from the, for the problem. From the Word, you see the Lord Jesus Christ. And through the preaching of the Word, you hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. None of those things is believing received except by the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit and the Word are the two means God uses. The Spirit and the Word, rather, are the one way the church is built. This is how God does it, through the Son of God, by Spirit and Word. And third thing, the church didn't begin when Adam died, or when Jesus died, rather. Adam was part of the church. Noah, Rahab, Jeremiah, they're all part of the same church that we are part of. It's a gathering. There's one people of God. There's one way of salvation. Boys and girls, Abraham was saved the same way that you were saved. Well, how so? You believe what God said. You have trust in the promise of God. Whether it's the coming Messiah, the Messiah who's already finished the work, you're believing God. There's one Catholic that means universal church. God draws people from all tribes, all languages, all peoples in the world. The church is not limited in that sense to time and space. Fourth, the work of the church building is the work of the, is the, is the, work of the Son. Through the Spirit and the Word, it's this work that He does. Gathers, defends, and preserves for Himself. He gathers, defends, and preserves. He gathers from all places, all times, he protects or preserves. No, defends rather. He defends from all enemies against the cross of Christ. And he preserves. He preserves the church from falling away. He preserves the church from worldliness. You think, well, doesn't church discipline do that? Yes. God has ordained these very means. We're often the very means that God uses to gather and protect, at least. The preaching of the word must have at least part a defense of the faith. There's an apologetic, a polemic that takes place, especially in catechism preaching, to defend the church. And the Son of God preserves the church. That's very, very important. I recently heard of someone who said that they didn't want to have children. They don't want to bring children into this world. It's a messed up place. And they're not wrong about that. I have to teach my children things that my parents never even thought about or had to teach us or speak about with us. So maybe they're right. Maybe we just shouldn't bring children into this world. It's a broken and depraved place. There could be a compelling argument if you did not confess question answer 54. That the Son of God will preserve His church. We need not fear what the future holds. Christ will preserve His church. If we didn't believe that it is the Son of God who does the work of gathering and of defending and of preserving his own people, the community chosen for eternal life, then it might be a good conviction, don't bring children into this world. 
But the world has never been right since the fall. It's never been a sinless utopia. There weren't really, spiritually speaking, the good old days. There was times of reformation and revival in the history of the church. But it's been in the midst of sin and brokenness. Even the greatest, strongest, godliest leaders, reformers, were but men, sinful men, who stand in the same need of grace that we all stand in need of. And so our calling as parents, in part, brothers and sisters, is to train our children for war. But that war already was taking place in the Garden of Eden. It's not a new war that's taking place. The antithesis, the battle, is always the reality. In the battle, the war begins in our own hearts. It doesn't even begin out there. It begins in here. But we must confess and find comfort and peace in the fact that indeed the Son of God will preserve His church. Even if it is beyond our view, Elijah cried out, I alone have not bowed the knee to Baal. He was wrong. Thousands still had not bowed the knee to Baal. Christ will preserve his church. And fifth, the church is united. Our catechism says, in the unity of the true faith. There are many different denominations and federations of churches, but there is only one true church of Jesus Christ. It is a community chosen for eternal life. In the unity of the true faith, a church chosen to eternal life. It's not churches. The Son of God doesn't preserve churches eternal life. He preserves a church. He's not a polygamist. He's got one bride. And she's beautiful. And it is the church of Jesus Christ. And she's Catholic. Sixth, our catechism says... And I believe that I am and forever shall remain a living member of it. Our membership in this community is eternal. We will forever be members of Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. And notice it says living member. No dead members. Living members. So this clearly is not talking about simply physical membership or participation in a local congregation. Let's talk about true faith. Living members. Is this your confession? We may talk about the, the theological aspects of the church. And there could be any number of discussions or debates about how you distinguish you know, a universal church compared to a local or institute and organism and visible, invisible. Forget all that. Is this your confession of faith? I am now, and I always will be, a living member of the bride of Jesus Christ. Is that your confession? If so, see the beauty, see the beauty of this church. The very one God has called you in. Not even just this congregation but the Catholic Christian Church. 
Second, we see the mystery of the grace of God in the sweet communion of the saints. There are two parts explained here in our catechism. First, that believers share in Christ. They're members of Christ. And secondly, we're to serve in the name of Jesus Christ. It's a tremendous privilege and a calling in that. The first part of this is the reality that all believers together are members of Christ, have communion with Him, and share in all His treasures and gifts. Now, boys and girls, you know what it means to share. It's not always your favorite thing to do, but you know it's right. Well, what our catechism says is that we share in something. That means nobody possesses the entire thing in themselves, but that they share not simply a part of Christ, but they have a share in Christ. This is the language of, of union with Christ in John 15. There's one vine with many branches. We're all working then with the same focus and the same goal. We're busy doing many different things, but what unites us, what unites our activities together, is our identity. Have you been baptized? Because if you've been baptized, then you've had the claim of God placed upon you. You've been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's claimed you as His. In your activities then, what you do simply just flows out of who you are in Jesus Christ. I belong to Jesus. The unity of the church is their unity in Christ. Every believer, as members of Christ, have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. A.W. Tozer wrote, quote, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos, all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart, nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. 100 pianos all tuned together because there's a standard it's a chord that they reach. Congregation, when your eyes are focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ, you might have all kinds of different opinions and backgrounds and occupations and whatever situation, but when your eyes are on Jesus, we're walking together. We've all been given a race. We've all been given a path. But the path for the believer, the path for the one who shares in Jesus Christ, is a narrow path. It is a path fraught with pitfalls, with traps, with stumbling blocks, with hurdles. And sometimes you think, you alone, you're the only one who's got to walk this difficult path or have this difficult trial. But it's not true. 
And that should humble us. We all struggle. We all need the help of the Lord. But we do share in Jesus Christ. And because we share, we share together. Second, everyone is duty-bound to use his gifts readily and cheerfully for the benefit and well-being of the other members. God gives gifts to people so that they be a, be a blessing to others. J. John F. Kennedy famously said, Ask not what you can do for your country, but what your country can do for you. Our catechism says in so many words, Ask not what your church can do for you, but what you can do for your church. What gifts has God given you to be a blessing to others? Have you ever wondered why God has given you particular gifts? Have you ever wondered why God has given you an occupation where you make more money than you need simply to pay your bills? But doesn't our catechism answer the exact question? Why? So that I might, as is my duty, use my gifts readily and cheerfully for the benefit and well-being of the other members. Duty-bound. Duty might not be as high of an ideal as it was 75 years ago, but God thinks it's important. The great example we have, and you can see this with, with the proof text under our catechism there, is that of the Lord Jesus Christ. What did Jesus Christ say time and again? What was he there for? To win friends and influence people? Have a fun time? Enjoyed his vacation times away? He was friends with fishermen? Fishing from time to time? Nope. Time and again, he says, I've come to do the will of my Father. This is the work that my Father gave me to do. For this very purpose, I've come into the world. Pilate asks him, so you say that you are a king. It's a spiritual kingdom. What does Jesus say? For this purpose, I have come into the world. Philippians chapter 2. He who is in glory comes in humility. And what does he teach his disciples? How to build a great army to destroy the Romans? No, he teaches them how to wash each other's feet. In humility. The very example we're given of what it means to serve is Jesus Christ. Two other words are used there as well. Readily and cheerfully. Means you can't fake it. Readily and cheerfully. This can be difficult at times. We can understand duty. Boys and girls, you must clean your room. Or wash the car, whatever chores your parents give you. And you must do that because they say you must do that, because they're your mom and dad. But can you do it readily and cheerfully? Thank you, mother, father, for the privilege to clean my own room. Well, it's easy to pick on kids. Adults would never think that way, would we? 
readily and cheerfully. This isn't a guilt trip a congregation into volunteering more. We're all busy people. We have school community, we've got church community, we have work communities. What our catechism is really getting at isn't what percentage of your time are you committing to kingdom work? The question our catechism is really getting at here in the sweet communion of the saints. Maybe I'm just painting too rosy of a picture here. Sweet communion of the saints. What our catechism is getting at is the same thing the scriptures get at. It's the same thing David continued to cry before the Lord. It's the heart. It's the heart. Parents try to teach this to their children. Don't say that to your brother or sister. Be kind to them. Fine. Nope. Try it again. Nope. Not, not that. Go clean your room. Stomp down the hall. It's a matter of the heart. As you look around, even in this local congregation, do you realize the tremendous blessing you have to have the sweet communion of the saints with those who have a different last name, not related to them? You don't have to be friends with them. But you are united to them because you are united to the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you equipped to use your time, to use your money, to use your energy readily and cheerfully for the service and the enrichment of the other members? Third, and the certain forgiveness of sins. And here we go back to Isaiah 54. In Isaiah 53, we probably know that passage a little bit better. We have this beautiful passage of the, the prophecy of the, of the suffering servant. And we read this on Good Friday, and, and we, we praise God for this, this glorious work of, of the one who's oppressed and afflicted. Like a sheep before it shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Then we come to Isaiah 54. It's a bit of an interesting passage. It essentially lists all of these things that had happened that, that were, I mean, this is prophetic, but that, that were not going well. There was barrenness, there were enemies, there was oppression, the land was creeping in, getting smaller. And what does God say? Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. Blessings are going to come. And then verse 10. For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed. This is the Lord who has compassion on you. Well, what, is that, what does that actually mean? Translate that to modern language. The world might stand against you. Even some within the church might stand against you. You might be maligned, made fun of, mocked and ridiculed. The government might oppress the church. 
You'll first lose your tax-exempt status. And then you'll lose the next thing. Then you'll lose the next thing. And from our eyes, we might think, this is going down a horrible, horrible road. This continues. The church won't even last. Won't even exist in Canada. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed. If it was up to us, if it was in our strength to build this church of Jesus Christ, we would fail. We would for sure fail. No one would come. But he says, enlarge your tents. It's like having 50 people in a congregation. You're going to build a new church building, so you build it for 5,000. Wow, that is optimistic. Enlarge your tents. Well, the prophetic nature of Isaiah 54 is this. God will build and establish his people. When Peter confesses Jesus as Christ in Matthew 16, Jesus says something we need to be reminded of time and again. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. And the gates of hell is the whole entire the whole entirety of our mortal enemies. The devil, the world, their own flesh. They will not prevail against the church of Jesus Christ. Our Lord will continue to call in his people. God speaks here of an eternal covenant of peace. Psalm 1 says, The wicked will not stand in the judgment. Why not? Because they don't have the satisfaction of Jesus Christ. That's what it comes down to. Question answer 56. You almost wonder if they... If the officers of the catechism should have switched these orders around. First do forgiveness of sins, and then do Holy Catholic Church. It's altogether our confession. We believe a Holy Catholic Christian Church. Well, who are they? What's that? Who's that? Community of saints who have the forgiveness of sins. The cause or the why of forgiveness is Christ's satisfaction. Christ has met the demand. The wrath of God has been removed for sinners. The wrath is removed. That theological word is propitiation. He is our propitiation. He's removed the wrath of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he would be the propitiation of God. He's removed the guilt. Expiation. When Jesus prayed in John 17, on that very night when he was betrayed, he prayed that the hour had come. It was because Jesus finished the work God gave him to do. The next day he would cry out of the cross, it is finished. The way our catechism describes this is that I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, there's none other God is not satisfied in you. God is not satisfied in your works or your tears or your prayers or your sorrow or how hard you've tried. It all will fail. Not a single bit of it will measure up to the standard of God. But because of Christ's satisfaction, 
you are His. And because of that, your prayers, your works, your tears, your repentance are all your response to thanksgiving to God. You don't seek to earn the favor of God. You have the satisfaction already. Jesus Christ has done this. He will remember my sins no more. An act of forgetting. How can God forget sins? God knows all things. It's an act of forgetting. We do something similar when we, when we truly forgive somebody. What do we say by forgiving somebody? I will not hold against you that sin that you did. In marriage, it doesn't mean a year down the road. Remember a year ago when you did that? Nope. Out of bounds. Been forgiven. God will remember our sins no longer. Nor my sinful nature, against which I struggle all my life, but will graciously grant me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never come into condemnation. That's what God forgives in Jesus Christ. The sins that you do, the very fact that you are a son and daughter of, of Adam, you have a sin nature. You don't learn sin from your parents. You are sinful. You don't have to be taught that. It's in you. But it's all forgiven. Thankfully, our catechism does have this phrase, against which I have to struggle. Otherwise, we might doubt whether we are actually forgiven. But your struggle, brothers and sisters, with sin, your weakness when it comes to sin, is a universal struggle and is a universal weakness. Each one of us here will struggle our whole life. You will never reach a point in your sanctification in this life where you can finally say, I've arrived. The struggle is now done. I don't have to deal with the sin thing anymore. That day will happen when you breathe your last or when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. How does God remember our sins no more? Because of the cross. Because of Jesus Christ. He's done it all. Listen to how Micah chapter 7 describes this. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression for the remnants of, of his inheritance? And think about this description of God. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Poetically saying, they'll be forgiven at the cross. And when you trust in Jesus Christ, your true satisfaction, your sins have been forever dealt with, that by faith in Jesus Christ you are justified, and that you are as just, you are as righteous before God today as you will be on the day of judgment. That is how the satisfaction of Jesus Christ works. That's breathtaking. That's what we have. Catechism concludes here that we will never come into judgment, never come into condemnation. We're not only forgiven our sins in Jesus Christ, but we're given His righteousness. 
Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. No other work save thine, no other blood will do. No strength save that which is divine can bear me safely through. Brothers and sisters, those beloved of the Lord. There's a reason a minister starts sermons with that phrase. Beautiful, beautiful church of Jesus Christ. God has provided the Savior. Through him, we have the holy Catholic Christian church, the communion of saints, and the forgiveness of sins. So let us see the true beauty of the church of Jesus Christ. Men might see her sore oppressed. She might be divided by, by schisms rent asunder. We'll sing it in a moment. She's Christ. And she's adorned with a beautiful wedding dress that our own Savior gives her. So let me close with these words from Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is what the satisfaction of Jesus Christ has done. And the great encouragement I leave with you this afternoon, congregation, you belong to him. You are his. He is yours. Amen.